Well, welcome everybody. In case you're new or visiting, my name is Luke, one of the pastors here at Carson Valley Bible Church. And as always, it's a joy to be able to be with you this Sunday, to be able to open up the Word of God again. And today is a fun Sunday for us because we're actually beginning a new sermon series in the book of Jude, or the letter of Jude. Jude in June, church, it's here. I know you're like, finally, I'm tired of you talking about Jude in June. Well, a few more weeks. Now, Jude, it's a, it's a short letter. In fact, it's actually only one chapter long. It only takes up maybe one page in most of your Bibles. In fact, some scholars suggest that Jude is probably the most neglected letter in the New Testament. And I think they're probably right. Not because it's intentional, that right, people are avoiding looking at Jude. It's just simply, uh, they, we just don't. We just don't. And there's lots of, obviously, really good letters, right? Good books in the New Testament, um, in the Bible as a whole. But this one little letter, I think, is important for us to look at. Even if it is neglected or difficult to understand. And I don't know what that says about me. In, in just some of the sermon series I've been choosing lately, that I'm a glutton for choosing things that are not usually talked about in the pulpit, right? We've, we've been doing Genesis, right? There's no controversy there, you know, about the creation of the world or what humanity or sexuality looks like. And then most of you guys know that we just finished up the Trinity series over the last five weeks, pondering just the depths and the riches of who God is. And I think we're still trying to map wrap our minds around just the beauty of the Trinity. And now we have this really small letter that's small in size, but it's not in punchiness, right? It's not in some of the awe factor that you will see. And my goodness, and some of you have already told me this walking in. You're like, you knew we were doing Jude and June. It's a short letter. So you kind of ahead of time were reading it, and you came in and say, I got questions. I got questions. Because here's what we will see. There will be aspects of this letter that will absolutely stir your affections for Christ. That you're going to love the things that you see. There's going to be other parts of this letter that are going to have you scratching your head. Going, I have no idea what he's talking about. There will be things that you're going to say amen to. There's going to be things that you're going to say, uh-oh, to. Okay, even this little chapter. This one chapter letter, I think, is going to have a wonderful impact on how we view Christ, how we view the church, how we even view just the role and responsibility that we get to have as Christians living in the times and places that God has ordained for us to live in. It's going to be an encouragement. So go ahead and turn there in your Bible if you haven't already. If you're using one of those Black Pew Bibles, that's going to be on page 1027. Jude is the second to last book of the Bible. So if you're turning there and you find yourself in the book of Revelation, you've gone too far. Just go back one more book. One more book. And now as you are finding your way there, let me go ahead and just pray for you. And as I'm praying for you, will you guys pray for me? And then we'll jump into the Word together. Well, Father, I want to 
just thank you that we have this time, that we have your word to even open up and look at. But God, we want to be intentional with this time that we have. We want this, our, our time in your word to be about the exaltation of what your word is all about, and that's you, Jesus Christ, in your marvelous gospel. So God, I pray that that would be clear today. God, I pray that we would see faith, faith being just our, our understanding of who God is and what, what God has done in his creation, just to become very tangible this morning. So God, I pray that, Lord, that you would just use your spirit to illuminate this text for all of us to rightly see who you are, what you've done, what you've called us to, to behold and participate in. Father, I also want to just pray for our kiddos next door. God, as they're looking at just the, the way that the gospel started in the book of Acts, that you would just give those teachers wisdom. That, and, but Lord, I ask that you would just open up those little hearts that are in those rooms. Just allow them to see you and the beauty of your gospel, along with every single one of us. And Father, we ask that then every single one of us, whether we're small or big, young or old, and everywhere in between, that we would all be able to walk out of here loving you more than when we first walked in. And we pray this according to your mighty and precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Jude. The book of Jude. Today we're just going to tackle the first four verses. Verses 1 through 4. Let me go ahead and just read those for us. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who were called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, beloved. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yes, we are thankful for God indeed. Now, for the note-takers in the, in the room, let me give you some brackets. Is I have two major categories that I want to look at this morning. In these first four verses, I think we can see two distinct claims at the start of this letter. In verses 1 through 2, we're going to simply see Jude calling Christians to remember their identity. To remember their identity. Who are you, Christian? That's verses 1 and 2. In verses 3 and 4, we're going to see the call to contend for the faith. Contend for the faith that has been passed down to them. So remember and contend. Now before we actually jump into the text itself, because it's our first week, uh, we need to give some context to right, who is writing this letter. Who is Jude? Who is he writing to? Right, some of the circumstances that are surrounding it, because we have to rightly understand a letter in which we are trying to read and understand. 
And I think it will actually aid us in, in how we interpret a letter, if we know some background to it. In the theological world, this is known as the concept of hermeneutics. It's the art and science of interpretation. How do you rightly understand a passage? I know it's common in our day to, to you know, throw out, well, that's just your interpretation. It, it may be, but it doesn't mean it's wrong, or it doesn't mean that the author didn't have a way that he wanted his audience to interpret it. But how do you do that? How do you know that you are having a correct understanding of the text? Well, we have various tools in, in hermeneutics to rightly understand the text. Some of those tools include the totality of Scripture. What does Scripture say about something? How do we use Scripture to interpret Scripture? What's the history? What's the grammar? Right? What are some other things that, that we can use to faithfully arrive at a correct understanding of a text? These are all really important, church. But let's go ahead and just start with the author. Right? The letter bears his name, Jude. And Jude introduces himself as a servant, or bondservant, which I'll come back to in a little bit. But then says that he is the brother of James. Now that's a good historical clue. Who is James? Well, most scholars agree that James, the James that he is talking about, is actually James the Apostle. Better known as the half-brother of Jesus. And you know why it's called half-brother, right? Same mom, as in Jesus and his siblings had the same mom, Mary, but not exactly the same dad, right? Jesus was conceived, you know, through the Holy Spirit. It was God, the Son, who took on humanity when he came, so it's not exactly the same family dynamics. So that's why Scripture often refers to the siblings of Jesus as half-brothers. Now, we don't really know, to be honest, a whole lot about Jesus' earthly family. There's not a whole lot. It's not the emphasis of the gospel. It's not the emphasis of the rest of the New Testament. But there are a couple of places where we get some clues. For example, there's a, a couple of spots in the gospels that we learn that Jesus had sisters and four brothers. And then we're actually given the names of those four brothers. There's, and those include James, Joseph, Simon and Judas, or Jude, is another way to say it. Kind of like a, you know, a, a James or Jimmy thing. It's the same person, but you can go kind of by different nicknames. And I think we all understood why Jude did not want to go by Judas, right? There was another Judas, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the disciples who betrayed Jesus, right? Sold him out to the Pharisees, and and he kind of ruined the name for everybody, right? Nobody wanted to be confused with that Judas. So Jude, Jesus' brother, went by Jude and not Judas. Now, but that doesn't mean that Jude did not have his own past when it came to Jesus. In fact, we're told in a couple places that the immediate family of Jesus his mom, his sisters, his brothers, actually tried to stop Jesus and his work of ministry early on. And let me show you this from Mark 3.21. This is when Jesus first begins his ministry. He's been casting out demons. He's been healing. He's been teaching. 
And it says here that his family heard of it and actually tried to go out and stop him, to seize him, saying that he was out of his mind, that he was crazy. And this likely would have included Jude as one of the brothers who was doing that. Now, a quick pastoral note. This means that Jesus had family who thought he was crazy. Crazy for the things that he was doing. So if you've ever had family, maybe you have family right now, who thinks that you are crazy for the way that you prioritize your life, or think that you're crazy for the ways that you want to glorify God in your life, you can take heart, Christian, knowing that your Lord, your Savior, knows exactly what that feels like. And so you actually can go to him and say, Lord, I have these crazy personal family dynamics going on. And he says, I know. I know what that's like. And he can be that perfect high priest who can come and intercede and to shepherd your soul in that way. But going back to Jude, but then what happened? Right? How did somebody go from trying to stop or seize Jesus to now we're reading a letter of his that's recorded as canonical scripture calling Christians to contend for the faith, to contend and remember and to hold fast to their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How did that happen? What happened from trying to stop Jesus to giving your whole life to the exaltation of him? Well, I think it's the same thing that's changed all of us. The death and resurrection of Jesus. That he came to an understanding that Jesus is the one who was prophesied throughout all of the Old Testament. That he is the one who Jude, like any other person in this world, desperately needed. Desperately needed someone to live a perfect, holy, righteous life. Because they know that they couldn't. I couldn't. But not only did they need a righteous life, but they also needed their sin to be atoned for. And what's the proper atonement for sin? It's death. And so at some point, church, Jude was captivated by the person and work of Jesus. Not just as his brother, but as his savior. And we don't know exactly when that place, right? We don't know when that new birth happened or that regeneration happened in the heart of Jude. But we do know that it changed him forever. We can see that clearly. And the next time that we actually see a mention of Jesus' brothers is over in the beginning of Acts, in Acts 1.14, right before Pentecost. It says the church is gathered, right, in this upper room. They're praying. They're, they're seeking, okay, what, how do we take what Christ has done for us? How do we take that message, that gospel, and we go out into the world? And they were praying about that. And it says in Acts that along with the disciples were also the brothers of Jesus. Praying with the church. Something happened to them. Right? They were changed. Even 1 Corinthians gives us this clue that Jude likely became this itinerant preacher. Going around to the different churches, preaching the gospel to them. I think that's actually why we don't see Jude riding to a specific church like we see Paul doing. But rather, Jude is just riding to the church in general. Because he's hoping that this letter of his will be circulated amongst all of those Christians and whom he had built relationship with. 
So Jude was changed by the gospel. And his identity was so grounded in Jesus. Did you take note of how he actually introduced himself? Look back at verse 1. Because he doesn't even mention that he's also a brother of Jesus. But says that he is a servant of Jesus. It's the Greek word doulos. It means, I think a, a better translation rather than just servant is a bond servant. Or even a slave. Which was intended, church, to communicate who did you belong to? Who was your master? Who was the most important person that shaped your entire being in this world? That's what a bond servant is getting after. Who is that person that you want to most glorify in this world? Who is that person that you owe everything to? Whatever that is, you are a bondservant to that. And so Jude, at the very beginning, is saying, I'm a bondservant of Jesus. I belong to him because he has given me everything. It was a term of humility and identity. And that's why if you look at most of the New Testament letters, their introductions, you'll see guys like Peter and Paul and James use the same language and describe themselves as bondservants of Jesus Christ. And we should ask, what would it take, right? What would it take for you to actually call your brother Lord and Savior? What would that take? I think it would have to be true. It would have to be true. There's no other way that you would do that. And I believe that the, the reason why Jude brings this up at the beginning is because this is so important for where the whole letter is going. Even if you jump down to verse 4 for a second, when Jude is getting into some of the false teachers that have come into the church, he actually says, do you know how you can identify them? Is the way that they describe themselves. The way that their actions reflect who they think their master is. And so he says, you actually know that they're false teachers because they deny Jesus as their master. They do not identify as being bondservants of him. And so the question I think we must ask, right, before we even look more at the contents of the letter is, how do we identify ourselves? Do we identify ourselves as bondservants of Christ, Christian? Or do you just see yourself as a consumer of religious goods? Do you see that your life has been paid for, atoned for, bought by the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords? And that the reason that you're sitting in these seats today is because of him. And so you gladly say, I belong to him. I don't deserve anything outside of him. And when you do that, church, there's this leverage. There's this, there's this leverage of your life that you want to leverage it for his purposes. For his purposes. That you see yourself as someone that has come to serve. In the same way that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. See, we belong to him, church, and that's such a beautiful thing. It's not enslavement. It's not slave in the way that when we think of slavery comes to our mind. No, the disciples love to call themselves slaves of Christ because they're saying, no, I've, 
He's my master, and he's a good master. I happily belong to him. Because where I was going, the race that I was running, it did not end where I wanted it to end. But rather, this one good master has bought my freedom, has given me everything by taking what I deserved to the cross. So identity is going to be an important factor throughout this letter. Is Jude reminding the Christian, what is your identity? How do you view yourself? Because that will affect everything about you. Much like we talked about in the Trinity series. We looked at how does God identify himself because we know what he does flows out of who he is. Identity matters, church. But make no mistake, Jude is not saying that this identity has to be earned by you. That you have to somehow do something to get this this status or this position with Christ. Look at the rest of verse 1. Where he says, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Here's the good news, church. That your salvation and your identity in Christ is 100% because of him. That he has set his love on you. That he has called you out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. And Ephesians tells us, and we've looked at this quite extensively over the last few weeks. Ephesians tells us that that happened actually before the foundation of the world. Had nothing to do with you. He didn't wait for you to do a bunch of good things and then say, you know, I think I could really use him on my team. No, it's before the foundation of the world that he set his love on you. It was before the foundation of the world that he called you. Called and beloved by him. And then it says that you're being kept by or kept for Jesus Christ. And now some translations, if you have something other than the ESV, it might even say by Jesus Christ, which is also a a correct way to translate that. That Christian, this is important. That means that you can have full assurance of your faith. Full assurance of your faith. That he who began a good work in you is going to do what? Is going to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Because you are loved and you are being kept by yourself? Nope. By him who has set his love on you. And God never loses anybody who belongs to his fold. Your identity is secure in Christ. It can't be taken away, church. It cannot be taken away. And as Jude gets into the coming verses, he's basically going to communicate, and we're going to see this more next week, that there's going to be really tough days coming. Tough days coming. That there will be people who are going to try to convince you that your identity, that your purpose, that your desires should be in something or someone other than Christ. That you don't have to look to Him to see who you are. You can look within to see who you are. And I don't think it's very hard for us to stretch that from the first century when Jude wrote this, probably around 70 AD, to our time now and go, that's what we're being challenged to do too. To look somewhere else outside of the Creator to identify who we are. And Jude is saying, no, 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 you are beloved by God the Father. You're being kept for by Jesus Christ. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. 
And then at the end of verse, or really all of verse 2, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, he says, in response to that, Jesus says, what I'm praying for is that mercy and peace and love are going to be multiplied to you. And I can say this with confidence, even though I haven't been doing ministry for a long time, right? I'm still, I'm, I'm a young buck in this game. But yet, even with just a few years under my belt, I can tell you, when, when the, the world, or even within the church, things get hard, right? When there may be confusion, right? When there may be this, maybe a lack of unity, like, what do we want to be about? What's this church going to be about? I can tell you, these three things go a long way. Mercy, peace, and love. They serve the church really well. And so I can totally get why Jude says, I hope these are multiplied to you. Because you're going to need them. You're going to need them as you navigate the waters that I'm about to present to you. So that's the remember. Remember your identity. And then starting in verse 3, though, we get some pointedness of, okay, Jude was not just writing to remind us of our identity. What is he trying to communicate to this church? Well, in verse 3, it lays it out pretty plainly. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. A way to think about this would be, Jude had every intention just to, to come over to your house, right? Sit on your front porch swing, right? Enjoy a lemonade and just marvel and talk about the goodness of what Christ has done in their lives. Like that common salvation. He was just looking forward just to a, a nice reminder in time just to sit and marvel about the grace of God. But something has happened. Something has happened to those low-key dinner plans. Someone's in the house. Somebody else is trying to lead that proverbial dinner conversation away from the supremacy of Christ, but rather to a celebration of sin and even a a full-hearted rejection of Christ. So he says, I wanted just to come sit with you, but now I have to contend and I have to write pointedly to something else. And so he starts by, you need to know that you need to contend for the faith that has once for all been delivered to you. You need to contend for that. Now, here in Jude, when Jude says faith, here in that context, it's faith. It's not as we see elsewhere in Scripture where faith is right the believing and trusting in the promises of God. When Jude is using the word faith here, he's actually, he's talking about the summary or the rightful teaching of the word of God. The rightful teaching of who God is and even what the gospel is. That's what he means by faith here. And that word contend, it means to make a strenuous effort towards. To fight for. It's where our English word agonize actually comes from. And he says, you need to agonize, you need to contend, you need to fight for this faith that's been delivered to you. Because there are people in your house already, and there are more people coming who are going to try to convince you to move on. Or convince you that it's not complete. 
But what Jude is saying is here, that message of God, that message of the gospel, it's finished, right? It's been delivered to you. You don't have to look elsewhere for new revelation. It's not incomplete. It's complete. And even, I think the way that sometimes it gets phrased in our culture is we don't have to adjust these core doctrines of what God has told us through his word in order to accommodate that to an ever-changing culture, right? We don't have to nuance who Jesus is just because of what is most popular in our communities or in the world. But rather, when somebody says, hey, your faith is outdated, your faith is incomplete, you should really change this because if you actually want to reach people, if you actually want people to believe in Jesus, you need to take away this edge of the gospel, And what's the response from Jude? No, you don't. You have to contend for the faith that's been delivered. And by the way, who is Jude writing to? Is he writing to pastors? Is he writing to people who are going to be standing in pulpits like I am? Or is going to be heralding the gospel in public? Not necessarily. Who is he writing to? Christians. Christians. All of us. This is for all of us. It's not just for me to contend for the faith. Even though I do think, as a pastor elder, I have a a unique bearing to do that inside this church body. But what Jude is saying, every Christian is called to contend for the faith. Every Christian is called to identify what is true and reject what is not. And in verse 4, Jude tells us that these false teachers, and he, he calls them by a couple of different names. He calls them these people or certain people. He says they've already gotten in. They have crept in. Meaning that they didn't come to the church saying, hey, just so you know, I'm a false teacher. Coming in. They crept in, right? They probably said the right things. They probably manipulated, probably said what they thought you know, people wanted to hear in order to gain these positions of influence. But now they're showing their true colors. Man, I wish false teachers were so blunt. Right? I wish every YouTube channel had a little, like, tag on it that said, true teacher or false teacher. Or every song said, teaches you the right thing or teaches you the wrong thing. I really do. But it doesn't. And so we are called then to contend for the faith. To understand who are we letting into our lives to teach us? Who are we letting us to shape the faith in which we believe and are resting our whole life upon? Who are we letting to shepherd and care for us that way? And so Jude says, there's some things that have gone astray. There's some people that need to be identified. And then the rest of verse 4 is basically these four summaries of of how can you identify or what is going to be true of these false teachers who are already a part of the church. And I just want to go through those quickly. These four characteristics that we can see in verse 4. The first one is that they were designated for this condemnation a long time ago. Now what Jude is not saying is that these people were, you know, somehow 
possess or didn't have moral responsibility for what their actions are. But rather, what I believe what Jude is highlighting for the church to understand is, even though you may not have known of them until now, maybe you didn't know about them at first, that's never been the case with God. He's always known about them. He's always known who they are and what is coming to them. Listen, you may be able to fake it amongst Christians. It's true. You, you could fake it. But you will never be able to fake it till you make it with God. He knows all. He knows all. And he says, those who reject Christ, right, mislead the people of God, is that there is a, an act of justice that will be coming to them in due time, and it will not be thwarted. And so Jesus is saying, even though they're there, know that God already knows they're there. And he's already moving things according to his perfect will. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we see that they're actually ungodly. He describes them as, you'll be able to know about them because they're ungodly. Now, I think like that first insight, everybody's true selves will come out in the end. Right? Their ungodliness will be exposed. And how will it be exposed? Well, their denial for the things of God will show true. Right? Their denial for saying, yeah, I know God's word says this, but don't you think we should do that? Doesn't that sound better? He says their ungodliness will be exposed. Number three. He says that one of the ways that you can recognize false teachers is how they actually pervert the grace of God. He describes it very specifically, saying that they will turn it into sensuality. It's another way of saying that they're going to turn it into a license to sin. Saying, if you believe in the grace of God, does it really matter then how you live your life? Won't God just forgive you? Does it really matter? Doesn't God just want you to be happy? no matter what, that, what you determine happiness to be? He's saying they'll turn it into sensuality, that it's more about you and less about him. And church, that's a false teaching. It's a false teaching. It's not, it's not even true grace that they're speaking about. Because true grace, a true understanding of what God has done for you, right? the free gift of salvation, the free gift of Jesus going to the cross and dying for your sins and rising from the grave. He didn't do that because you did something for him. He did that because he wanted to. It was his joy to go to the cross. And he's saying, if you believe that, if you believe in that grace, and that actually makes you want to sin more, and turn your back on God more, then you don't understand grace in the first place. Saying they've perverted grace. They don't even understand it. Lastly, number four, it says that these false teachers ultimately deny Jesus as their master and their Lord. That their lives do not reflect the things that are about the supremacy of Christ. That although they may confess Christ with their mouths, they actually deny him by their works. And church, Jude is saying that their identity then, how they view themselves, what their actions reveal about what's most important to them, 
needs to be highlighted, needs to be looked at by us. Because their identity is the most important thing about them. And that's the same with us, church. That's why we go back to that beginning. That's why Jude began the way that he did. Jude's heart and his identity was so wrapped up in what Christ has done for him that he wants that to be true of every single Christian. Of who is your master? And he's thinking, and we will we'll know this about them. Now, I need to say this. I need to be clear on this, though. Is what Jude is saying about these false teachers, is he's not saying that these are, are struggling Christians trying to understand the truth. He's not talking about Christians. He's not talking about those who have understood the gospel and embraced Christ at some point in their life, and they're just in a season of struggling. That's not who he's talking about. Because what Jude is not trying to do is cast doubt on any single one of us who are saved, right? Who have believed in the gospel, have turned from sin and turned to Christ. And that's why I want to keep always throughout this whole letter going back to those first few verses. Your identity is secure. You are being kept for and by Jesus Christ. So he's not trying to cast doubt into believers' hearts, saying, he doesn't want anybody else, any of us to walk out of here going, am I really a Christian? Now, that might be helpful if, if your life doesn't reflect this desire to be a bondservant. But he's not saying, man, if you're struggling, you should, you should doubt your salvation. We don't see that. He's also not saying that there shouldn't be non-Christians in your churches. Right? And I'm so thankful for, for this, even in our own little body. I know that we have people in this room who wouldn't say that they're a Christian. They wouldn't confess Christ as Lord. And we, we're thankful that you have the integrity to, to say that, to be honest with yourself and be honest with even some of the people in this church. And I hope this is always a place that you can come and investigate who Jesus is and what he has done and not feel this pressure to put on a, a fake confession just to appeal any, appease anybody. Right? Jude is not saying that we shouldn't have non-Christians in the church. What Jude is speaking to is non-Christians who know they're non-Christians or are saying that, I want to be a pastor. I want to have influence. I want to teach because I have something to say. Jude is saying, watch out them. Jude is throwing the hammer at those who are trying to fake it till they make it. It's specifically those who are trying to fake it till they make it in positions of leadership, church. That's why we take leadership so important, right? So seriously. That's why it's important for us. That's because we know that there are real false teachers, but I think here's a danger for us, right? Is in the first century, to be a false teacher, you had to physically, right, come into these places of gathering and teach or enter into the home. You had to be invited in. Where we have the unique challenges, I think, in our culture today is, is you can look up a false teacher by the push of a button on your phone and have no idea about it. And so as we see... Jude talking about these false teachers uh, specifically and addressing them. 
I think there is a sober reality for every one of us and going, who am I letting into my life? Who am I letting into my spouse's life or my kid's life to teach them about the things of God? We need to all contend for the faith. Does that make sense? Okay. And why do we do that? Why do we contend for a faith like ours? Why do we contend for the message of the gospel? Why do we contend to who God is? It's because it's the message that it's the only message in the world that can bring sinners into a right relationship with God Almighty. It's the only message that can take sinful people and reconcile them to a holy God. That's why we contend for it. We contend for it because Jesus said, there's no other way to come to me or come to the Father unless you come through me. That's why we contend for it, church. It's the only message of hope to a dying world. Charles Spurgeon, one of the, when people asked him, because he was a, he was a fiery you know, preacher in the pulpit, and, and you can get that even through his, his sermon uh, manuscripts and transcripts, right? Because he, he preached in London um, in the 1800s. But even when you read through those, those manuscripts, you can see this fire that was in his belly that he desperately desired for all of London to have a right interpretation, a right understanding of what God is and what the gospel is. And they would ask him, why are you so passionate about this? And, they, and he would say, it's because men are dying and hell is filling up. I have the message that they can be reconciled to a holy God and never dare enter into that space for all eternity. This is church, is why we contend for the faith. And even though it's not Charles Spurgeon, I think it's even better. The apostles in the book of Acts, when they were told, hey, you should really stop preaching about Jesus. It's really upsetting a lot of people. This is what they told the the Pharisees. This is from Acts 4.12. They said, well, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Why do we contend for the faith, church? Because that's true. There's no other name. There's no other path. Right? There's no other ability. And so we exalt him. We contend about him. We lift him up. And so just as we end our time today, let's walk out of here just remembering the first few verses of Jude, that we are beloved by God the Father. We're being kept for by Jesus Christ. And we get to contend for the faith. Not in order to keep our salvation, but we get to contend for the faith because we have salvation. How good news is that? We live in a weird world. I don't think I have to explain that to anybody. We live in a weird world that needs the faith to be contended for. There's plenty of people trying to adjust, trying to manipulate, trying to make it easier to swallow. That's not our call, church. Our call is not to change the faith. Our call is to contend for the faith. And so let's do that with all that we got because we're being kept for by Jesus Christ. Let's try to get as many people to understand that as we can through his sovereignty, through his wisdom. Let's go ahead and just end there.
Let's pray, and then we will respond in a couple ways. Well, Father, I thank you that we have a faith that's worthy of being contended for, that we have a faith that saves, that we have a faith that secures us in you. And so, Lord, as we, as we just continue our time together, Lord, we want to just respond to this good news that you've given us. God, we want to take seriously the, the warnings that Jude gives the church. And know that if it's, if it's true of them in that situation, it could certainly be true of us in our situation. So Lord, help us. Help us see that you are worthy to contend for, but do so in a position of assurance. So Lord, we lift up all of these things to you because you are mighty and able. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.